Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Okay, so you guys try to finish this after I start it. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are that to secure these rights, see, no one knows that after that life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And this is the important part. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So let's read Romans 13. 1 through 4. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority as opposed to the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And then one other passage, 1 Peter 2, again, speaking to the civil magistrate, which is our chapter this morning. 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14 says, Submit yourselves... For the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. So, that's, those are two very important passages. We could go to a number of other passages on the civil magistrates. Um, and come up with our biblical doctrine of the civil magistrate. This chapter 
of the confession is extremely helpful. Um, I think it's, it's something that in recent years, uh, given the climate, the ethos of the country that we've lived in, we've, um, we've thought much about because of the uh, work of the civil magistrate and the way that we've viewed it um, as an infringement of rights and things like that, that we've, there's just been a lot of percolating on the relationship between the church and the state, the authority of the state, where and what uh, that authority is. Now, I, I want to go back to that declaration because the Declaration of Independence is flat wrong. Governments do not derive their authority based upon the consent of the governed. Okay? You've got to shake that loose from your head. That is not a true statement. It is not a biblical statement. It is not a, even, I would say, a helpful statement. Right? Because it being unbiblical, it can't be helpful. Where do the civil magistrates derive their authority? From God. Now, just, we could settle there, we could think about this, we could argue about that, but that is sort of like suddenly rays of sunshine coming into a cloudy landscape. And it just sort of boggles our mind because it's been cloudy for age after age after age, right? The authority of the government comes because God has vested authority in those governors, not because of the consent of the governed, right? Some, uh, Hodge said, some have supposed that the right or legitimate authority of human government has its foundation ultimately in the consent of the governed, the will of the majority, or in some imaginary social compact entered into by the forefathers of the race at the origin of social life. But Scripture teaches us that civil government comes from God himself. And that it has authority by the will of God with or without the consent of the governed. And as Americans, we're kind of like, what in the world? What are you doing to me? You're taking away my, my rights, right? You're taking away my individual rights as a person. And I say, um, we're just giving you the Word of God. And the Word of God has said that governments are instituted by Him. And that certainly is the way that you want it to be. Because what God's will is good. God's will is good. It's good for us. It's good that He has uh, instituted this and that um, He, therefore, being the one who instituted it, rules over it. Okay? You don't. He does. Right? Even if we were a pure democracy and we all had votes and the will of the majority was constantly enacted, we would still say that doesn't give you, that doesn't make the will of the, the government based upon 
uh, your determination, but upon the determination of God. And so that's the first thing. Look at the first word of this chapter on the civil magistrate. God! (laughs) Right there. God. I just think that's great that this chapter starts right there. God, the supreme Lord and King of all the world, right? Who reigns over the world? Who reigns over the church? Who reigns over every individual? Who reigns over all the governments of the world? Whether they be totalitarian, whether they be democracies, whether they be constitutional republics, whether they be monarchies, who rules over them? God does. God does. And he delegates his authority to those institutions for a purpose, for his purpose, right? And so there is no hint anywhere in this. There is no hint in the scriptures and there is no hint in this chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith that um, of government by the people, of the people, for the people. It's just not here. Okay. So there's some order here. Notice the order they set out in this first, first section. Let's read it. God, the supreme Lord and King of, the, of all the earth, hath ordained civil magistrates to be under him, over the people, for his own glory and the public good, And to this end hath armed them with the power of the sword for the defense and encouragement of them that are good and for the punishment of evildoers. All right, so that's a really dense statement right there. Really nice capturing of those two passages that we just read. Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, right? And so there's an order here. What's the order? It goes, God, civil magistrates, the people. Okay? And even still, as Americans, we're kind of like, man, it doesn't seem like the people should be under the civil magistrates. I understand God being the supreme Lord and ruler of the universe, but um, no, that's the authority that's laid out there. We could say the same thing. We could say it this way, thinking about ecclesiastical authority. God, the church, the people, right? It would be the same thing, same order there. And so our role as people who live in a commonwealth is to um, honor and submit ourselves to those civil magistrates because God has set them up and given them authority for a specific purpose. Now, that doesn't mean... uh, Now, think about the words there in that first, first section. It says... God, the supreme Lord and King of the whole world, hath ordained civil magistrates to be under him. Okay? It does not say against him. Right? Let's, let's put in different prepositions here. Those civil magistrates are to be under him. Which means, which means viewing him as an authority. Right? serving his purposes. And so under him, but if, it, if it, you know, it, it, many people um, 
would say that civil governments seem to be against him. To be against him would be to, uh, if, if the civil government were acting in a way that was against God, what would they be doing? They would punish what God says is good and they would praise what God says is evil. That would be to set themselves against him and not serve under him, okay? And we could give examples of that in our own commonwealth, right? We can give very clear examples where, where the government has set themselves up against God. And we're not even a totalitarian state. Um, <clears throat> it does not say that the civil magistrates are over God. To be over him would be the grossest kind of blasphemy and idolatry that we could conceive of. The government of men lording over the supreme Lord and King of the world, right? That would be idolatry. That would be blasphemy. It does not say beside him, right? It doesn't say that the civil magistrates are given authority to uh, beside God, right? There's order here. Again, if it's said beside God, then that would be idolatry and a sinful overestimation of the state's authority. A sinful overestimation of the state's authority. Okay? And so this, this whole first section, it, it gives us order, purpose, and power statements about the civil magistrates. So the order is God, civil magistrates, people. What is their purpose? What is the purpose of these civil magistrates? As it says in the confession, what, it, what is the purpose? Not yet. That's the power, not the purpose. To God's glory and the public good. Okay? Those are the two, two purposes of the... Um, of the civil magistrates, they are to govern in and bring glory to God. They are to bring glory to God. And they're also to keep order. Keep order. Um, they are to uh, punish evil. They are to praise what's good. Right? They, um, there are certain functions of government that help to those two ends. Right? We could put a whole bunch of different functions of government under that public good. Okay? Um, and, and we could, and once we got down the list, we'd start arguing about whether or not the government should, should do that or whether or not just private individuals should do some of those functions. But there are functions that, uh, the government should take on for the public good. Um, one major one would be, uh, to defend her people, right? We would say that that's a, a one of the main functions of government. But they are to act to God's glory, right? They're, they are to, to enact what he says is good, and that will be to his glory. And what power do they have? What does that mean? What is the power of the sword? But the church has the power to punish too, but the church does not have the power to punish unto death. The state does. The state has the, the ability to corporeally punish, right? To, um, to throw in jail, 
and to execute those who commit certain crimes. They have the power, it's called a coercive power. If you don't do what they say, out comes the sword and they say, this is going to hurt if you don't do this. Right? The church doesn't have that power. The church has the power to minister the Word of God. Right? So, the, so what, what can the church do? The church can go to you and they don't go to you and say, pull out their sword and say, you better obey. What we do is we go, you better hear what God says to you or we're going to excommunicate you, right? We're going to boot you out of the fellowship of the church. But the, the, state, the state can't do that. And if they tried to do that, we would be like, no, you're getting out of your lane. That is the jurisdiction of the church. God has set up a government there, and it is, it is independent of the power of the state. Right? But the state has that power, that coercive power, that power of the sword. And so, um, you know, like, like uh, Paul says in Romans 13, you know, um, if you, do, you, do you not want to have a fear of authority? Well, do what is good. Do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. But if not, if you resist this authority in the ordinance of God, God has given it the power of the sword. Okay? And one thing I want to say about that is the church, the church should stay in its own lane too. Okay? The church should not ever become envious of the power of the sword. God has not given the church that. God has set it up so that they don't have that, okay? But so many who long for things like Christendom or return to Christendom or something like that seem to be saying that they want the church and the state to be intermingled so that the church has the sword and the sword ha- and, the, and the state has the ability to inger- intermingle in the affairs of the church, and that is not the Westminster Confession of Faith as we have it. That is not the Westminster Confession of Faith. Westminster Confession of Faith properly and scripturally keeps those powers separate, right? They both must glorify God. They both are to serve Him. They both are His ministers. But the church should not get bored with ecclesiastical power. It's glorious. It's the Word of God. It's for the good of his people, right? It's for your building up. It, it is a wonderful thing. It's just that no one today really respects ecclesiastical power. No one respects the church. No one thinks that elders actually rule over them, right? We have to like remind ourselves of that just as much as we have to remind ourselves that, yeah, the government has authority from God over me and God tells me to submit to them, right? We have trouble in both areas. 
But, but what I don't like is today there is a strong movement for the church to cast a longing eye toward the power of the state and to want to take up that sword. And I believe that Scripture lays out for us, and certainly the Westminster Confession in the American version lays out for us those two kingdoms. Okay? Well, the Roman Catholic Church has a completely different view, and, they, and we'll get to that at the end of this statement. In, in section four, they take a stick to the Roman Catholic abuses, right? But they're also thinking of the Anabaptist and separatist abuses, okay? The Anabaptists were like almost anarchists, right? They didn't think that, they didn't think even the state should have the sword. They were pacifists, they, they didn't think the state should have the sword. Um, and, uh, and so they're, they're, addressing, they're addressing different factions. What is the political climate when the Westminster Confession of Faith is being written, Chuck? Well, they d that's a little after the Westminster Assembly, but it's only a few years after the Westminster Assembly. But during the Westminster Assembly, there's civil war. The parliament is against the king. The king is against the parliament. And there are 45 different factions in England all jockeying for power, right? And so they're like, so, so this was birthed, these statements on the civil magistrate are birthed in the midst of civil war. You have to remember that. You know, that is significant to understanding why they say these things. And you have to realize that Oliver Cromwell... And the killing of Charles I, the execution of the king, Charles I is only two years after this is completed, right? And then Oliver Cromwell becomes, what's he called? The Lord Protector of England. And then peace reigned and Christendom came in and there was no more conflict. <laughs> oh, man. No, it was, it was bloody battle. It was Christians killing Christians. It was denominations going after denominations. It was, it was difficult. All right, so that's, that's, that, that's the first section. Any comments or thoughts or questions? I'm just sort of vomiting the last two years of thinking about this. All right, number two, section two. It is lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of a magistrate when called thereunto. In the managing whereof, as they ought especially to maintain piety, justice, and peace, according to the wholesome laws of each commonwealth, so for that end they may lawfully now under the New Testament wage war upon just and necessary occasion. All right, again, a lot packed into that. It is lawful for Christians to be civil magistrates. Why is that in there? Why would they say that? Yeah, Zandy. Excuse the necessary clarification when Jesus said to Peter not to take up the sword. 
Okay. Maybe. Right? I'm thinking historically. Why, why is this there? This is there again because of those Anabaptists. The Anabaptists who were pacifists, the Anabaptists who said we wouldn't take up our swords, the Anabaptists who would not take oaths of loyalty to anybody, right? The, the Anabaptists who, um, you know, and, and the Anabaptists have a history from, from the start of the Reformation. 1527 is when the, uh, their confession was put together, Okay? That's early. That's early in the Reformation. But they, they, they said that government is evil. And we're not going to participate in it. We're going to be separate completely from the government. And to participate in something that's evil is to commit evil yourself. That's not our view. The government is a minister from God. The state, the civil magistrate is a minister from God. We think they missed it right there, Okay. But the Anabaptists were like, we're not going to, it is sinful to be involved in government. And so the confession comes along and says, no, it's not. It's not. It's not. A Christian can work in, in government, in the civil magistrate. And notice this, um, in the managing whereof, as they ought especially to maintain piety, justice, and peace, so that their work is laid out for them. They, not, they may not work as a civil, a Christian may not work as a civil magistrate and commit sin, commit evil. They have to commit what is good. And when their conscience is bothered by some, some order that they're given, they should at that point say that they can't go along with that. But then notice that there's like a parenthetical statement end of the first line on page 117. Those civil, those Christians working in governments should, should abide by the wholesome laws of each commonwealth. Now, that's an interesting statement, too, and you have to fill that out. The, the, according to the wholesome laws of each commonwealth. What this does is allows for... for Um, different forms of government. The, the confession of faith doesn't lay out one form of government where, where, which is, you know, the, the, the form of government that uh, should be put in place. What they say is if you're a Christian and you're working in government, then insofar as your laws are wholesome, no matter what system you're in, according to the laws of your commonwealth, no matter if you're in a totalitarian government like Daniel, right? Or you're in a totalitarian system, you know, you're under a totalitarian system like the Apostle Paul, right? Or whether you live in communist China, or whether you live in a modern totalitarian state, or whether you live in a representative republic, or whether you live in a socialist nation, right? It does not put forward a, uh, a singular um, body politic to which Christians um, may work and, to, and, I, and I would say by extension to which Christians should uh, shoot for, right? 
when did the Apostle Paul exhort us by the Holy Spirit to submit to governing authorities under totalitarianism? That was Nero, okay? It was totalitarian. Yeah, there may have been a Senate. There may have been some structure like that. But don't mess with Nero, right? He'll light you on fire and put you on posts in the middle of his city. Okay, it was totalitarian. The rule of law was not exactly uh, wholesome. (laughs) Okay, any questions on that? All right, what, what else may those, uh, those commonwealths, the government, may also wage war? Again, that's going against the pacifism of the Anabaptists and Separatists. And they're saying, no, the government can declare war if, if they have godly reasons for it, right? If that war is just and, and, nece- and on necessary occasions. And, of course, we could argue about when... It's just and when it's necessary, right? And we'd want to go back to probably Aquinas and learn about just war theory and and other things like that and study what the reformers said about it. And um, it's not it's uh, it's beyond my knowledge, okay. But remember what is happening at this time that those magistrates may wage war upon just and necessary occasions. Remember, Parliament was waging war against the king. (laughs) Parliament was actively waging war against the king. Okay? Again, the Westminster Confession of Faith, 1643 to 1647, commissioned by, not the king, by Parliament, the English Civil War goes from 1642 to 1649, and Charles I was dead in 1649. All right, so number three, number three has an interesting history. Chapter, or, uh, chapter three here is completely rewritten from the original, okay? So let's read the American version. This is from 1789, these American revisions to the confession. It says this, civil magistrates may not assume to themselves the administration of the word and sacraments or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So far, it's basically the same as the original. Here's where it changes. Or in the least interfere in matters of faith. Yet, as nursing fathers, what a strange metaphor, scriptural metaphor though, Yet as nursing fathers, it is the duty of the civil magistrates to protect the church of our common Lord without giving the preference to any denomination of Christians above the rest in such a manner that all ecclesiastical persons, whatever, shall enjoy the full, free, and unquestioned liberty of discharging every part of their sacred function without violence or danger." And as Jesus Christ hath appointed a regular government and discipline in his church, no law of any commonwealth should interfere with, let, or hinder the due exercise thereof among the voluntary members of any denomination of Christians according to their own profession and belief 
It is the duty of the civil magistrate to protect the person and good name of all their people in such an effectual manner as that no person be suffered, either upon pretense of religion or of infidelity, to offer any indignity, violence, abuse, or injury to any other person whatsoever, and to take order that all religious and ecclesiastical assemblies be held without molestation or disturbance. Well, that's clear, isn't it? Makes sense? Takes a little explanation. Here's the original. What do you think the original says? Yeah, it gives the civil magistrates quite a bit more power to intermingle in the affairs of the church, right? Whereas that creates the separation. Um, This is different. Here's what it says. The civil magistrate may not assume to himself the administration of the word and sacraments. It's interesting, that first sentence, if you look at the revised version, is plural in the American version. It's singular in the original. Why would that be? Probably because they're thinking of monarchs. The civil magistrate may not assume to himself the administration of the word and sacraments or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Yet he hath authority, and it is his duty to take order that unity and peace be preserved in the church, that the truth of God be kept pure and entire that all blasphemies and heresies be suppressed, all corruptions and abuses in worship and discipline prevented or reformed, and all the ordinances of God duly settled, administered, and observed, for the better effecting whereof he hath power to call synods to be present at them and to provide that whatever is transacted in them be according to the mind of God. That's huge. Do you realize that? Do you see the difference there? Right? There, there is in the, West, the original Westminster Confession, I mean, these divines are caught between a rock and a hard place, right? They're trying to navigate this incredibly complicated landscape. And they've seen kings come in and order things and do well, right? Queen Elizabeth was much better than Queen Mary, right? And so, there was a pivot to the Reformed, you know, and so they're, they're seeing this and they're like, um, you know, maybe, maybe we do need to give them power because we want them, because they have power and they can bring that power to bear in settling these arguments among the churches. But on the other hand, it was a double-edged sword, wasn't it? They had power to insert themselves in the churches and then guess what? The Scottish Covenanters are like, no, not going to happen. And do you know what happened to the Scottish Covenanters who wanted to hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith? They were persecuted by the civil magistrates who inserted themselves into the life of that church. Okay? And so... So, you know, those theonomists who long to have a king who holds to the Reformed faith, just might think that, you know, four years is not a long amount of time for um, those reforms to take place, and that after four years, 
After 25 years, there may be a quick shift in the opposite direction according to the whims of the one who leads the nation, okay? And so, do you understand that what the American version does is puts forward the concept of religious freedom? Very conscientiously puts that forward. Now, are there problems with religious freedom? Of course, right? Somebody can set up a synagogue of Satan in the property right next door to us, okay? Um, In Oklahoma, there's a statue of a demon god that was put up by Satanists, right? Like on the Capitol grounds or in the Capitol or something. I can't remember exactly. Some of you may know it, but... Um, And it's like, okay, that's wickedness. That's not good. It's not right. Um, And yet, uh, the government is not to show preference to any denomination. But again, think of the American context. Most of the people were fleeing religious persecution and coming to this new country to have what? Religious freedom. That was a good thing. That was a good thing, and they weren't about then to um, sanction a government coming and saying, no, 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 yes to you, no, 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 right? And so, yeah, there are problems, I think, on both sides. There are abuses of what's, what's potentially good on both sides, but can... But this is to put forward this, um, this concept of religious freedom, which was uh, quite, quite a part of the DNA of the early pre-American and early American context, right? Um, the, the state may not tell the church how to govern the church and, dis- and perform the discipline of the church. And we say... Hooray! I do not want the state to tell me how how to fence the table. Right? I don't want the church to come in and say, or the state to come in and say, look, um, so-and-so has committed this sin, and you will do this in response to that. No. No, you don't you, you don't have that authority. This is not your jurisdiction. That's the jurisdiction of ordained men who have been raised up in the church, and uh, they have a real authority which should not be um, bothered, right? But what are they to do in, in regard to the church? This does lay out some responsibilities that the civil magistrates have in regard to the church. What limited responsibilities does it have? What? Yeah, they are to protect the church. In other words, they should, they should create a peaceful context in which the church can, can exist. Right? They keep the civil order so that we can gather together on a Sunday morning. Right? They, they have that, um, you know, but that's part of their function. That's laid out to them previously. They are not to give preference to any denomination of Christians above the rest. And think of the burned-over district in New York. Think of all the crazy sects that have popped up in, in the United States. That's part of the consequence of religious freedom. 
Would we rather have that? Or would we rather have one monarch telling us exactly what we are going to do, say, and believe, even to the point of telling us how we're going to worship God? If I can come together and worship as God has laid out in His Scripture, even while some crazy sex exists, I would pick that over having everything in the church dictated to me by a civil authority that doesn't have jurisdiction. Right? Right? Because... Yes. Yeah, I mean, it, it destabilized the country. It led to civil war. I mean, that very fact could have been. Um, and, and so, uh, I mean, think of Henry VIII. Think of Henry VIII in this respect. He's like, Roman Catholic Church, get out of here. I'm the supreme lord and head of the church. No. You're out of your lane, Henry VIII. You know, the whole existence of the Anglican church is because of this misunderstanding of, of this, this scriptural distinction between the two kingdoms of state and church, right? And so, we want godly rulers. We do. We want Christians ruling over us. We pray for that all the time. Right? We want righteous laws. We want all of those things, right? But we, we don't want to be dictated to, in our worship especially, by anything other than the Word of God. Not the whims of any man, not the whims of any assembly, right? But by the Word of God. So, um, it's, my, it's my conviction that civil governments and church government will not be one until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And then it will be one, right? So it's coming, but it needs a king like Jesus on that throne, right? A perfect king. That's when all those governments will bow their knees, right? That's when all the glory of the nations will come into the new Jerusalem where Jesus reigns on his throne, right? And so um, until, until that time, um, and, and good conscientious brothers see it differently. They see, they see that, that civil and ecclesiastical authorities coming together before Jesus comes back again, right? Postmillennials would hold that view to a certain extent and different forms of postmillennialism see it in different ways, Right? I'm not, I'm not convinced of that, right? I'm not convinced of that. But they can make a scriptural argument on that, okay? Um, the difficulty is play-acting like that's the case now. It's not now. We do not have righteous rulers. 
okay? They are not honoring God as they clamor to kill babies in the womb, okay? Okay? So, um, how much time do I have? What time is it? Oh, man. That's terrible. Okay, um, section four. It is the duty of people to pray for magistrates. You've got a duty there. Pray for those who rule over you. To honor their persons, right? Don't dishonor police officers when they pull you over. They have authority from God. Don't dishonor them. Don't speak back to them. Submit to them. Right? That's where we start. Um, to pay tribute or other dues. Pay your taxes. It's in the Bible. Right? And maybe don't even grumble and complain about it. To obey their lawful commands. Right? Obey them. When it's lawful, obey them. And to be subject to their authority for conscience sake. You are under their authority. And then it says this, Infidelity or difference in religion doth not make void the magistrate's just and legal authority. If you have an absolute pagan tyrant in the office, that doesn't mean that he doesn't have authority. In the same manner that if you have a pagan, unbelieving uh, sinner who happens to be your pastor baptizes your baby, that doesn't nullify the baptism. It doesn't. It's not tied to the piety of the one doing it, right? It's what the other sections of the Westminster say. And so, you know, you, you can't make this boast and say, look, they, they are infidels. They, they resist, they resist religion and say, therefore, they're illegitimate. The confession says, no, you can't do that. Not free, uh, nor free the people from their due obedience to them, from which ecclesiastical persons are not exempted, much less hath the Pope any power and jurisdiction over the civil magistrates in their dominions or any other of their pe- or any o- over any of their pre- people, and least of all, deprive them of their d- dominions or lives, if you shall judge them to be heretics, or upon any other pretense whatsoever. So just a few quick things there. Um, ecclesiastical persons, pastors and elders, don't have diplomatic immunity in a commonwealth. I don't have to live by your laws. I'm a man of the cloth. I just live by the laws of the church. There are many, many commonwealths where that is the case. If you're a Roman Catholic priest, you don't live according to the laws of the land. You have your own ecclesiastical laws. It's almost like diplomatic immunity, okay? They said, no, ecclesiastical persons have to submit to the authority of the state. And then they just say, the Pope, stay in your lane. Pope, you don't have any civil jurisdiction anywhere. You don't have, and especially you have no power to kill anybody. You don't have power to kill even heretics. You don't have that here. Now, the power of the sword belongs to the state, not to you, Mr. 
uh, Mr. Pope. Okay? And so that's where they end. Um, the Pope has no civil jurisdiction, certainly not to execute persons for any reason, even for heresy. So, um, that's it. Four really concise, I think very helpful statements on this. We probably want to argue about some of the things that I said, but um, I think this is really helpful to us in thinking through uh, the interface between the church and the state and, uh, and correcting us where we're just blindly American and not biblical. We want to be biblical. We want to be biblical Americans, okay? And we want to honor those above us. And, and when they come out and they start destroying the church by lawless decrees, well, then it's the duty for us to say we must obey God rather than men. At that point, right? When they're attempting to destroy the church and, and the... Um, the preaching of God's Word, and that healing balm of the Word, well then, well then we do have as, um, we do have by the sanction of God the ability at that point to resist, okay? And it's very important and very difficult, very intense. So, all those men who signed the Declaration of Independence, do you realize that they were committing treason and they knew it and they knew that they would likely die because of doing that, right? That's how much was at stake. It wasn't whether or not they were going to wear a face mask. They were committing treason against a tyrant. You know, stakes were very high. And read John Witherspoon's sermon that I shared a few months ago on this topic for his reasons as to why he signed that and preached, uh, preached a wonderful sermon before that and gave his reasons as to why what they were doing was just. It's actually very helpful. All right, we have to pray. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you reign supreme over your church and over the state. Lord, we do pray that the church would honor you and, and do as you've commanded her. We pray that the state would honor you and do as you've commanded her. Father, we pray that, that you would raise up for us righteous rulers who, who fear you, and to love the citizens of this particular state, truly love, not just a, a, a fake love or a feigned love, but love, and so that they would punish what is evil and praise what is good. So Lord, help us to uh, bear this yoke, help us to submit to and honor the authorities over us to your praise and glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.